0: If you have a copy of God's word, I invite you to turn to the book of Second Kings. Actually, if you want to turn to first Chronicles and go back a few pages, we're at the very last chapters of Second Kings. Second Kings chapter twenty four. 2 Kings chapter 24. This morning we return to our sermon series called According to Plan. And you remember that here we're looking at the unfolding of God's plan to bring about redemption in Christ. We're doing this by taking uh, a week uh, to look at each book of the Bible. So we do one book of the Bible uh, each week. And we're looking at its themes and also the basic story that's there. The goal of which is not only to see... Uh, the glory of God and the salvation provided in Christ, but also to provide a large framework so that as you on your own are studying and reading and being in God's Word, regardless of where you find yourself and what book you're in, you will, you will have your bearings. You will know what has come on before, you will know what's coming after you, you know the basic themes of each book of the Bible. And so this morning we'll pick, we pick our series back up in 2 Kings. And honestly, there is so much powerful material in this book Uh, that it was very hard to decide what to preach on. My initial desire was to preach on one of the miracles of Elisha or on uh, one of the godly kings that you see here, Hezekiah or Josiah. Josiah in particular was very, uh, very tempting. I I had three different outlines for his section of the book thinking I might preach that. Um, He's a descendant of David who was even better than David and has followed after God in all his ways and all his heart and sought to purge Judah from every width of idolatry. He was an amazing man. But the reality is, if I'm seeking to give you what the main theme of 2 Kings is all about, then Josiah will not do. Because Josiah was, uh, frankly, too much of a blessing on the people of Israel. Overall, the story of two kings is not a story of triumph, it's a story of tragedy. It's not a happy story, it's a story of judgment. And if I'm going to show you what the entire story, the theme of Two Kings is about, then we need to go to the end of the book and we need to see where the story ends. We need to see where things are going throughout the book and how despite the best efforts of the faithful prophets and godly kings, what we end up with is judgment from God's hand. What we see is not a pretty picture. God's people are uprooted and removed from the land that God gave them, the land that was promised to them as Abraham's descendants. And you have to realize this is not just like moving across town. This is not even moving from the house you grew up in. It's, it's so much deeper than that. The land of promise, the land of Canaan was one of the central pillars upon which the Israelite identity and religion stood upon. It was a sign marker, it was a symbol, reminder of who they were as God's people, that God had taken them, he saved them from Egypt and given them this land and made him a people for himself. And now that's all being taken away. The security of their homeland, their blessing as the people of God is being stripped from them as judgment from God against their sin. And this morning we want to see that sin that led Israel to be exiled by God's hand. But at the same time, we also want to see the provision of mercy that God showed to His people. Even in the midst of terrible discipline upon them, we see God showing mercy towards His people. We want to understand these things not just out of some kind of historical curiosity, not just to say we know what Second Kings is about now. No, this is this God that we worship the same God that we find in the pages of 2 Kings is the same God that we have spent uh, the, the last hour and a half year here for Sunday school praying to and talking about and giving the worship of our lives to. We see Him in action here and so we come to better grips with who He is and how we should live in light of Him. And I hope that in seeing a God who disciplines His people, even while also showing them mercy, will help you to better see the faithfulness of God to His promises. And then seeing that faithfulness that you will come to love and to trust Him more deeply. We have a large portion of Scripture to read, and I would just encourage you to, to follow along. We read all of this, not just because it's God's Word and is, is good and right to read it publicly, but because it gives us um, an, uh, um, an amazing picture of all that uh, is going on in the life of Israel and all that God is doing at that time. We're going to begin reading at... Uh, verse 1 of chapter 24, and we will read on to, uh, into chapter 25. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim, king of Judah, became his servant three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him, and the Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldeans and bands of the Syrians and bands of the Moabites and bands of the Ammonites, and sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servants and prophets. Surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done, and also for the innocent blood that he had shed. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not pardon. Now the rest of the deeds of Jehoiakim and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Jehoiakim slept with his fathers, and Jehoiakim, his son, reigned in his place. And the king of Egypt did not come out, against, out, come out of his land, for the king of Babylon had taken all that belonged to the king of Egypt from the brook of Egypt to the river Euphrates. Now Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Nehushta, the daughter of Elnathan of Jerusalem, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father had done. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up to Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon, himself and his mother and his servants and his officials and his palace officials. The king of Babylon took him prisoner in the eighth year of his reign. "...and carried off all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house, and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold in the temple of the Lord, which Solomon, king of Israel, had made, as the Lord had foretold." He carried away all Jerusalem, all the officials, all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives, and all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land." And he carried away Jehoiakim to Babylon, the king's mother, the king's wives, his officials, and the chief men of the land. He took into captivity from Jerusalem into Babylon. The king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon all the men of valor, 7,000, and the craftsmen and the metal workers, 1,000, all of them strong and fit for war. And the king of Babylon made Metaniah, Jehoiakim's uncle, king in his place and changed his name to Zedekiah. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamotai, uh, or, uh, Hamatu, and the daughter, uh, who was the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For the anger of the Lord for because of the anger of the Lord, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out of his presence. And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. In the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And they built siege works all around it. So the city was besieged till the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then a breach was made in the city, and all the men of war fled by night by way of the gate between the two walls by the king's garden, though the Chaldeans were around the city. And they went in the direction of Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. And his army was scattered from them. And they captured the king and brought him to the king of Babylon at Ribna, and they passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon." In the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem, every great house he burned down. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. And the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted the king of Babylon together with the rest of the multitude. Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried off into exile. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest people of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. Pillars of bronze that were in the house of the Lord. The stands and the bronze sea that were in the house of the Lord. The Chaldeans broke in pieces and carried the bronze to Babylon. They took away the pots, the shovels, the snuffers, the dishes for incense, and all the vessels of bronze used in the temple service. The fire pans also and the bowls. What was of gold the captain of the guard took away as gold, and what was of silver as silver. As for the two pillars, the one sea and the stands that Solomon had made for the house of the Lord, the bronze and all the vessels beyond weight, the height of the one pillar was eighteen cubits. And on it was a capital of bronze. The height of the capital was three cubits, a latticework and pomegranates. All of bronze were all around the capital. The second pillar had the same with latticework. The captain of the guard took Saraiah, the chief priest, and Zephaniah, the second priest, and three keepers of the threshold. And from the city he took an officer who had been in command of the men of war, and five men of the king's council who were found in the city, and the secretary of the commander of the army who mustered the people of the land, and 60 men of the people of the land who were found in the city. And Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, took with them and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. And the king of Babylon struck them down and put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath. So Judah was taken into exile out of its land. Then verse 27, in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the 12th month, the 27th day of the month, Evel-Merodach, king of Babylon, In the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him, and he gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived. May God bless the reading of his word. As we hear this passage, we do so as the climax of the entire book of two kings. And, we, in order to, and as we do that, we want to see three facets of God's character as He disciplines His people. First, we need to see the judgment of God's holiness. We need to see the judgment of God's holiness. God's judgment of sin is most clearly seen to the exile of Israel and Judah. No less than five times in our passage, the author speaks of exile. He carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives. And he carried away Jehoiakim to Babylon, the king's mother, the king's wives, officials, the chief men of the land. He took into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. The king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon, all the men of valor, the craftsmen, the metal workers, all of them strong and fit for war. the exile, the taking away of God's people into captivity is shown to be a judgment upon God, uh, upon the people from God. The question is, why did Israel then Judah go into exile? Why did God bring this discipline upon them? Well, our passage here at 2 Kings alludes to it in several verses, but the clear answer comes back in chapter 22. There we read about that last godly king of Judah, King Josiah. He's young, and in the midst of repairing the temple, one of his servants finds a copy of the book of Deuteronomy. And it's frightening because he doesn't know what it is. He says, look, I found this I found this book in the temple. I wonder what it is. Let me go take it to the king. And Josiah says, you found it in the temple? Well, well read it to me. And if you know what Deuteronomy is, it's a, it's a republishing of the law, as it were. It's a, it's a Moses' last sermon to the people of Israel before they go into Canaan and before he dies. And he's reminding them of all of the things that they are supposed to do as the people of God. All the ways they are to express their love for God. But it's also a reminder of not only the covenant blessings that will come to them for obedience, but the covenant curses that will come to them for disobedience. Moses says, if you do this, you will find yourself cursed by God. If you do this, you will find yourself cursed by God. And Josiah hears all of this in vivid color and he becomes stricken with grief. He tears apart his clothes and he calls for the people of his royal court to go and find a prophet. He says this, Go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. In other words, he says, Look, you you can make a hash mark against all these things. We've done them all in every way as the people of God. We have disobeyed Him. We have turned away from Him. And you've got to go seek out a prophet because as far as as I can tell, we're going to get obliterated. God has promised great wrath for these things, and I don't know what's taken so long. We should already have been judged. And God's answer comes back in verse 16 of chapter 22. Behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants. All the words of the book that the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods... They might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place and it will not be quenched. The Lord says it's because of the unending worship of false gods, the unending making of idols, because of Israel's insistent rejection of God's ways. This is why, this is why the God of the covenant will bring judgment on his covenant people. They have broken the covenant repeatedly. And one of the things that's hard to see because we're going book by book, and especially these, these narrative books that, are, that all are so tightly strung together, one of the things we miss is the long time frame that has taken place for all this in which to occur. And in doing so, we miss the enormous patience of God through all of this. We may come away with the idea of, you know, a couple bad kings and boy, God really lowered the boom. No, no, it wasn't like that at all. In fact, there is decade after decade after decade of God warning His people, raising up prophets saying, you keep going after the false gods and you've got to stop. He will raise up even godly kings who seek to put an end to the false worship. But over and over again, the people as a whole refuse to listen and keep going back to the false gods, becoming worse and worse and worse. And God even brings small little bits of discipline on them to help wake them up to get their attention. There's at one point a famine in the land, and it's so bad as the king, is, is, the king of Israel is riding out. One of the, the ladies calls out from uh, a, a wall somewhere or something is he's riding by. and he says, hey, king, what's for dinner? What's for dinner? Well, there's a famine. There's nothing for dinner. And She says to the king, why don't, why don't you cook up one of your kids and eat them? And I'll cook up one of my kids and eat them. And the king does it. The king goes off, kills one of his own kids, and eats them despicable act that flies in the face of everything God's covenant people were to be. And yet, repeatedly... After warning, after warning, after warning. In fact, all of the books of the Old Testament after the Song of Solomon are all prophetic books that record God's plea for His people to repent, to turn away from their sins and back to Him, lest He come upon them in judgment and discipline. Beginning in the northern kingdom, Israel was called to repentance. And when judgment came upon them and they were sent into exile, then prophets in the southern kingdom of Judah were raised up with the same message. Look what happened to your brothers in the north. Repent or the same thing is going to come upon you. And despite numerous warnings, numerous prophets, year after year, after decade after decade from warning from the Lord, the people still chose to turn away from God to their idols. Therefore, in judgment, God exiled his people from the land. He suspended the covenant that they broke and allowed the Babylonians and the Persians to invade the land, destroying their cities and carrying off his people into exile. It's a sad, desperate story that we read. It's a situation that reminds me of some ways of something that I read about happening during World War II. In 1942, apparently Hitler's health began began declining rapidly. He had had the flu and he had received some uh, injections to treat that from one one of his physicians, Theodore Morell. But then later on, Hitler's left eye began to twitch and he began to get numbness in his, uh, his left hand and his left leg. And so in 1944, a specialist was called in to examine uh, Hitler and he discovered that Dr. Morell had been treating his symptoms with something called Dr. Keister's anti-gas pills. Now, that doesn't seem like a treatment for the pains he was having and the difficulty he was having, but what was worse, that particular medication contained strychnine and belladonna. And if you don't know what that is, it's deadly poison. And so this specialist reported his findings to Dr. Karl Brandt, Hitler's chief surgeon. And, and Brandt immediately went to Hitler and said, you've got to stop taking these pills. You've got to stop doing what Dr. Morell says. You understand? He is slowly poisoning you. Day after day after day, as you take these pills. You are being poisoned. It's causing all these problems. Instead of rejoicing in this news, this, this news that would perhaps increase his health and prolong his life. Hitler instead decided to continue to follow the advice of the quack, Dr. Morrell, and fired Dr. Brandt. He just didn't want to hear this bad news, particularly in the midst of the war. Likewise, Israel and Judah over and over were warned by the prophets, your sin is killing you. Your sin continues to hasten God's judgment upon you. It is coming, and it will not be pretty. It will not be light. It will be fierce and terrible. People didn't want to listen. I just didn't want to hear that bad message. In fact, many of the wicked kings would specifically gather around them false prophets that would only tell them good things, that would only say, oh king, you're so great. Oh king, the Lord loves you. Oh king, the Lord's going to bless you. And if a real prophet of God would, would come before them and said, you're a wicked, idolatrous man, and God's going to get you for it unless you repent, off of their head, they'd have them killed just how far Israel had come. And yet, you know, even today, many of us are not that different, are we, from the people of Israel? Even the people of our culture in America are not that different. As they hear the message, as they see it, sometimes echoed in natural disasters when they hear it from our lips. The word proclaimed that judgment is coming again, not just on one people, not just on one little country in the Middle East, but over the entire world. God is coming in judgment upon sin, and yet we plug our ears and we don't want to hear it. We turn away from that message That really, that message of mercy, of saying, there's still time, repent, turn away from your sins. Turn away from sin to Christ who allows us to escape the coming judgment because He's already taken the judgment upon Himself. But we don't want to hear that. Lost people very often refuse to hear that. But what we need to understand this morning, especially if you are here and you're not a believer is that the only way to escape God's coming wrath against sin is to turn and put your faith in Jesus Christ. It's to see in Him the Savior that we need, the one who took the penalty for your sins, the one who earned a righteousness that God gives you so that you could be made right with Him. But more than that, even for those who have already placed their faith in Christ, for those who already know forgiveness, the warning is still there for us. Flee from sin. It's killing you the sin that you harbor in our hearts, the sin that we harbor, we don't want to let go of, that sin kills our relationship with God. It puts distance between us. It makes it harder for us to follow his leadership, to feel his power in our life, to, to, to be reminded of other sins that may be out there. It breaks down the relationships that we have with other people. In every way, it spiritually brings us death. And God is saying, run and repent. Christ has already freed you from sin. Do not be enslaved to it again. Do not go back, but continue to repent and turn towards me in faith. Well, a major theme that we see, not just through all of Second Kings, but specifically in God's discipline is the judgment of His holiness. But we also see the power of His sovereignty. We also see the power of God's sovereignty. In this book, God's sovereign power is seen in all kinds of ways, from the smallest of concerns to the largest issues involving the entire nation. The book begins very dramatically with Elijah being carried up into heaven by a whirlwind and his protege, Elisha, taking up the mantle of his ministry. And then what we get, if you don't read anything else of... Of, of, of two kings, at least read the first several chapters because you get these little vignettes, these little stories of how while the entirety of the nation as a whole is going away from God towards idols, you still have this little faithful remnant in the midst of all that unfaithfulness. You still have that small little group of people who still place their trust and their hope in God. And God is so very merciful and kind to them in blessing them in small ways, but very dramatic ways as well. For instance, you have this widow whose husband has been a prophet and he's been killed. She has, no, she has no way to, to live, no source of income. And so God provides for her oil. She says, the, the, the prophet Elijah says, go and get all of the buckets, the containers for oil that you can get from, from, from anywhere and bring them to me. And she goes from door to door. She goes over the entire little village where she's living, gets as many as she can. She says, this is all I can get. And miraculously, God fills all of those up with oil so she can go and she can pay her debts and have money to live on. There's another woman who is faithful to God and yet she is barren. Her husband and her cannot have children. And so uh, in his kindness to her for her love and support of God's prophets, Elisha says, I want to give you a son. And she says, no, no, don't, don't say that. I've not been able to have a son. Don't, don't even joke about that. And he says, no, by God's power, you will have a son. And she does. She conceives and she gives birth. But then one day out on the field's playing, the son gets some kind of a massive headache. He has a hemorrhage and he falls over dead. And she is distraught. And yet she picks up her child and she takes him before Elijah. And she says, I told you not to tell me that I was going to have a son. He, he died. And Elijah says, Elisha says, you will have life again. And by the power of God through Elisha, that son is raised back up to life as a display of God's power and sovereign goodness in the lives of his people. Then you've got this, uh, frankly, some, some comical stories where you've got these, these prophets that are looking for something to eat. They're all kind of on the hideout. And they're together. And they need something to eat. And this guy, who's obviously not a very good cook, he goes out and he finds these wild gourds and uses them for a stew. And immediately they begin to taste them. And someone yells, I love in my version, it says, there's death in the stew. Well, it's, these, these wild gourds were poisonous. And so, and so, you know, you're thinking, great, now what's going to happen? And Elijah just gets some flour and throws it in the pot and stirs it up. And he says, it's all better. It's all better. God can bring people back to life from the dead, and he can take a poisonous stew with a little bit of flour, and he makes it healthy for consumption. Then they're not only trying to find something to eat, they're trying to find a place to live. So they're building this house. And this guy is using this axe, head, and he's chopping this wood. And the axe head goes flying off and lands in the river. And he's like, great, there goes my axe head. But worse than that, it was a borrowed axe head. So what does Elisha do? And just a small display of God's sovereign power. He takes a stick and tosses it in the river. And suddenly this massive iron axe head floats right to the top so the prophet can pick it up, put it back on, fix it, and give it back to the guy. It, it, it's, it's amazing. All these small little ways God is displaying His sovereign power. But then more than that, in His judgment upon His people, His sovereign power explodes in its appearance He takes an entire nation and sends them off into exile. And God wants people to know ahead of time, this is not just because the false gods were stronger than me. I am going to do this. And so in chapter 24... As we read in the beginning, in his days, Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon came up and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years and he turned and rebelled against him. And the Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldeans and bands of the Syrians and bands of the Moabites and bands of the Ammonites. And he sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servants and prophets. God says, I am the one who has done this. I have raised up these people and brought them here by my powerful sovereign hand to be a discipline and a judgment upon you. And this brings up the other thing. Notice who it is that he's using. It's not just some godly king. It's not just some prophet that wipes out false, false teachers. Look who it is. It's Babylonians. It's Chaldeans. It's pagan peoples. Yet God says, my power extends to all things. Even these pagan people who do not believe for me, they are simply a tool in my hand for my purposes. Earlier in the prophet Habakkuk's book, God says this is what he is going to do. He says, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. God says, I raised up the Chaldeans. I allowed them to be prideful and arrogant and good at war just so that I could use them to come in and discipline my people and carry them off into exile. God's sovereign power isn't limited in any way. He's not just sovereign over his own people. He even raises up pagan peoples and pagan armies who he will later judge for their sinfulness to be used as an instrument in his hand the discipline of his own people. We see such a broad and bold picture of God's sovereignty from the meeting of, of small needs, though dramatically, to this large laying down and, 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 and bringing low of nations. And what are we to make of all this? What effect should seeing the power of God's sovereignty have on our lives? Well, think about it like this. I want you to imagine that you're going on a trip, and it's a trip that requires flight, and it's the very first time you've ever been flying, and you're scared to death about it. You're just absolutely scared to death because you've never been on a plane before. You've heard about plane crashes, and so you're sitting in the in the airport terminal, and you're you know you're kind of jittery, and you're trying to relax and calm down, and and all these things, and 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 you uh, you go over to the window and you start watching the planes land and take off, and you see this plane out on the runway. It's a massive plane. It's a Boeing 747. You see these massive. Four jet turbine engines. They begin to roar to life, and you literally begin to feel uh, the the magnitude of that power through the glass into the terminal. And you see this thing uh, rip off down the runway and, and and burst off into the sky. It's gone a matter of seconds. You say, man, that has got some serious power. To that plane. I think it's going to stay in the air. I feel pretty good about this. And so you start getting excited about your trip again. And then your friend says, Hey, come on, let's go. Our, our uh, they're they're calling our they're calling our our flight number. So you grab your bag and you and you go out and you're thinking you're walking to the terminal you're thinking you're going to walk out right to the plane but as soon as you go out the little jetway you realize you're going down not out and you wonder well, what's, what's going on and your friend says come on come on and you walk down these stairs and you actually walk right out onto the tarmac and what you see is a little, is a, is a little, is a little uh, puddle jumper plane You see something that's got a a prop on it and five of you are squeezed into this thing and, and suddenly, suddenly your fear of flying comes back big time and you are wanting to get out of there and just cancel the trip. Well, what happened? You were going to fly a minute ago. Well, that was when you were on the Boeing 747, right? When you saw this plane that was full of power, that was bigger and better and faster and more impressive than anything else on the runway, when you thought that was your sweet ride off to your trip, you were fine, you were great. But then you look out at this other little thing that wouldn't be, you know, be about as safe as a pig in a slaughterhouse, and you're thinking, no way, I'm not going to do it. They say, what, is it, what does that have to do with God? Simply this, what is your view of God? Is God 747 or is God... A little piper cub, what what is he? If you see God as just this this kindly, nice, bearded, grandfatherly type Santa Claus in the sky who uh, never really does anything bad or or, or never does anything really particularly good either. He just kind of sits there and he kind of waits for things to happen and he plays catch up with their lives. I guarantee you, you will not have confidence in him when the storms of life come. You will not have faith in Him when difficulty comes. You will not have a trust in Him to accomplish anything in your life. But if you see God for who He is, an all-powerful, sovereign God over all things, the one who can just as easily cause an axe head to float as to bring a sun back to life, who stops and starts the weather like he's turning off and on a faucet, of one who raises up kingdoms and then topples him simply by the word of his power. If we understand that that's the God who's promised to save us in Christ and to sustain us in Him, then we will have an unshakable confidence in our God. We will be able to stare in the face of things like war and joblessness and cancer and not lose heart because we will see and know there is a God that stands behind that, a God that is powerful enough to be in command and control of all things by his sovereign power. King shows us not just the judgment of God's holiness, not just the power of his sovereignty, but also the mercy of his faithfulness. As you read 2 Kings, you see people being carried off into captivity and exile. Frankly, it's depressing. I mean, as we read through that, if you, were, if you were locked in and you were following along, what you saw was the systematic dismantling of everything that made Israel glorious. You even saw the temple itself, God's resting place, the temple, broken apart. Not just like, oh, we're going to reuse this either. What was taken away as gold was just taken away as gold. Its significance was totally lost on those that were ransacked. And all of the people were gone and you're sitting here and you should feel like the person writing this, you should feel sorrow for God's people and the judgment that has come upon them because of their sin. That's what you should walk away from when you feel this book. But at the same time, you get to the very end of two kings and it's not what you, were, you, it's not what you expect. You read the end of the book and you say, what am I supposed to take away from this? Why did God put this in the Bible? Listen to it again. In the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, Evel Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim put off the prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given to him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived. You see, this passage is difficult because it's the end of one and two kings. This is the last thing that we read, and you're wondering, well, why did God end it this way? Is it, is it supposed to be a downer? Are we supposed to see this as more of the same of God's anointed being cared for by a pagan king? That he's a mere shadow of what he's supposed to be? And that he's representative of all of God's people? Is this, we're supposed to see what Israel has been reduced to? Simply dining at the hand of another pagan? Are we supposed to, to be left with more of that down, depressed, bitter feeling? Maybe, maybe, but I think there's something else that we're supposed to see here. Let's think about the text, what it's actually saying. First of all, unlike the king of Israel who goes off into obscurity we never hear from again, here we know what happened to Israel's final king, or rather Judah's final king. Furthermore, the author has gone out of his way to tell us this story because it takes place around 25 years after Judah's falling. So he's got to, to hop over 25 years of history to get to this thing. And notice the kind of wording that's used. Jehoiakim was graciously freed. The pagan king spoke kindly to him. Jehoiakim no longer had to wear his prison garments, but was given a provision of better food and even a place at the king's table above all the other captured kings. Now why in the world would Evil Merodach do such things? Why would this pagan king show kindness to Jehoiakim after 25 years of being in captivity? I think he did it for the same reasons the previous Babylonian kings attacked Israel, because the Lord had decreed it. Just as he used pagan kings to discipline his people now, he is using a pagan king to show mercy to them. Why would the Lord do this? Notice that twice the author makes a point of calling Jehoiakim the king of Judah. Who are the kings of Judah? Oh, the sons of David. It's the Davidic line of kings. Remember 2 Samuel 7, God established a covenant with David, which he said nothing would stop. Even after Solomon's rampant idolatry that caused the nation to be split into two, the Lord said, I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. But not forever. He says judgment and discipline is going to come because of this sin, but it's not going to last forever. And I think when we read these final verses of 2 Kings, we're supposed to see a glimmer of hope. I think we are supposed to see clearly the sin of God's people and mourn how far they have fallen. But at the same time, we see, I think, a God of mercy. Here is the final descendant of David to sit on a throne in Israel. And after repeated sin and idolatry, God still shows mercy to his people by demonstrating his faithfulness to keep his promise to preserve the Davidic line. Jehoiakim doesn't fall off into obscurity somewhere. No, he's actually shown favor by a pagan king. Ultimately, God preserves that line of David. And as Matthew 1 shows us, it is preserved so that just as he promised, God would use the line of David, not just for Israel, but to give the entire world a savior who will take away their sins. What grace and mercy from God's hand. When I was in high school, I went down on a mission trip to help rebuild a church that had been devastated by Hurricane Andrew. And before I went, of course seeing all the news stories uh, before the hurricane even made landfall, saying it's, it's this category and it's going to be this powerful and it's going to do this, kind of, this million, many millions of dollars worth of damage uh, as it goes through uh, Florida. So you had some idea of how powerful it would be, what the devastation would look like. But knowing all of that did not compare to actually walking down the streets of the city of Homestead seeing homes completely uh, uh, gutted, clean in two, seeing church bulletins wedged into a tree as if they were leaves that had grown out of that, the power of these winds, large and small bits of debris everywhere. You could not go anywhere without seeing shingles and siding and trash everywhere. Likewise, Israel had been told over and over again, this is the devastation your sin will bring. It will ultimately result in exile But it wasn't until they were actually under God's discipline, experiencing that exile, they knew how bad it would be. Likewise, for those of us who are God's people, those of us who have been adopted as God's children through faith in Christ, we need to understand God still disciplines His people when they sin. Don't look back at Israel and think, God's never going to do anything like that again. God's never going to discipline us to get our attention about sin again. Oh, yes, He will. In fact, he promises he will do that. And he tells us that it's actually an act of love that he does that. In Hebrews chapter 12, we are told that just as any human father loves his son and so will discipline him, so our heavenly father who loves us infinitely more will also discipline his sons. And he does this not as punishment, not as judgment for sins, because that's already been taken care of in Christ. In Christ, our sins have already been judged. They've already been punished. But rather, he disciplines us out of love, and mercy towards us he wants us to see that the sins that we still cling to do us harm and that he alone is best for our souls he disciplines us to get our attention to get our eyes off of our sins and back onto him too often when we face difficulty though that god has allowed into our lives we assume it's a sign of his abandoning us we don't understand what the discipline is for and here we need to see, just as in Israel, so also today, God was not abandoning His people. He was going to the greatest lengths possible to love for them, to get them to wake up to the reality of the sin that was in their life and to turn back in faithfulness to Him. Therefore, we need to clearly see and learn that lesson in our lives that the idol, kind of idolatry that Israel had and really any sin is ultimately going to lead into a place that is not good for us. And God is willing to discipline His people out of love to wake us up to that reality. That God who is holy and judges of sin is also powerfully sovereign and works in our lives to draw our gaze back to Him as an act of mercy in our lives. Therefore, as His people, let us affirm our desire to know and to serve no other God but the one true God, the Father of Jesus Christ. And let us then live that out by loving Him more than anything else in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for Your Word which shows us what kind of a God You are. Father, we pray that we would take that seriously. That Father, even in the midst of Your righteous and holy judgment of sin, we would also see Your great mercy and how that has worked out in our lives by the power of Your sovereign hand. Father, we pray that as we will sing in a minute that You would be clearly acknowledged and seen and loved in our life as the only God, the only King that we need. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.